Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, Peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. But whoever rejects me, rejects him who sent me. The seventy-two returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And he replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father. Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned, and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to be by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we pray today as we seek to open it up, that you would do just that, open up our eyes. I love that little moment there at the end when Jesus says that, blessed, uh, this strange word meaning, you know, someone's done you good. Uh, And he's speaking about the fact that they could see and hear things that previous ages had looked forward to but had not been able to grasp. Help us to grasp these things and not only to grasp them for our own selves but also to take up our part in the mission uh, that you have invited us into. We pray these things in Jesus' name and said amen. Open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 10 if they're not already so open. We're going to study this text today. Luke chapter 10 verses 1 to 24. Luke 10, the second half, has one of the more famous uh, portions of the New Testament, a story called the Good Samaritan. We'll look at that in a couple of weeks. It doesn't come out of nowhere, though. It is preceded by this text, Luke 10, 1 to 24. So we're going to look and see and hear from God, from Jesus through this text. Before we do, I want to play a little game with y'all. It's not a complicated game. You don't have to get up. It doesn't ask a lot of you. It does mean that you have to be able to count to five. Can you count to five? 
One, two, three, four, five. Yes, five is high, one is low. So our scale is one to five. And the game we're playing is how awkward do you feel? Maybe like right now. No, but so how this works is I want to ask you how awkward you feel talking about certain things. We'll go through a handful of categories. And then the way you respond, I mean, you can turn to a neighbor and tell them the answer. Also, though, I'd love for you to throw a hand up. You got to, you know, one, two, three, four, or five. One means I don't feel awkward at all. Some of you are like, you know, going to try to stick it to the man and you're going to give me a zero, which is fine. That's okay. I can take a zero. Five means I feel pretty awkward talking about this. So let's start with an easy one. Now, this doesn't apply to everybody in the room, but just imagine if, if it did, and those of you who it does, it will be easy for you, especially. How awkward do you feel talking about your children or grandchildren? Again, one being not awkward at all, five being pretty awkward. Okay, one for the most part, okay? Mostly ones, yeah? A little bit scattered. About 14 of you are participating. That's okay. Still love you. Um... How awkward do you feel talking about your job, your work? Let me see that one. Also, often ones and twos. Yeah, some of you like may have really strange jobs, so you put a three or something. Okay, how awkward do you feel talking about your political opinions? Throw that one up for me. Still some ones. I usually get more of a range. Yeah, a couple of fives. How many of you had a fr- have a friend like you hope their number is high here because, you know, you'd wish they'd talk about it less, you know? <laughs> yes. We understand. How about like, um, I'm going to pick one or two. Let's go with hobbies. So like if you like sports, maybe it's sports, your favorite team. If you're into knitting, maybe it's knitting. If you're into bicycling, bicycling, whatever. Like how many of you, how awkward do you feel talking about a hobby of yours or an interest? Yeah, mostly ones, twos. Okay, here's where you probably know where we're headed. And I'm not trying to set you up. This is, there's no gotcha moment here. But how, how awkward do you feel talking about Jesus to a non-believer? Let me see it. Quite a range. A handful of ones, number of threes, fours, twos, some fives. Yeah, good. I, I expected that we would have this range. When it comes to this issue of talking about Jesus, I do wonder sometimes why it's so hard for some of us, and that's not a rhetorical us, I'll place myself in there, why at least at times it is so hard for us to talk about Jesus to people who don't know him, to share the gospel, to do evangelism, that's the word. Evangelism is a word that means sharing the good report, telling the good news. You might see in the word evangelism, right in the middle there, you see the word angel. And that's just an old word for message or messenger. And in the front of it, you have this prefix meaning good. So the good message. So evangelism is telling the good message. Something happened, and I want to tell you about it because it has good implications in your life. Our team won the pennant. The war is over. Jesus died for your sins. So like that's what the word good news, that's what the word evangelism means. And theoretically, theoretically, if what we believe is true, who would not be all about this? Theoretically. Except like in practice, and I don't know, I don't know, how about you? I'd actually love to hear sometime your answer to this question. When is the last time you, you looked at someone you know and said, or someone you don't know and said, hey, can I tell you, can I tell you about Jesus? Can I tell you who I think Jesus is and, and what he's done for the world and what he's done for you? And I know Trust me, I know, like this is strange in many ways in our world today. Talking about religion at all is, is, is well, dangerous, might not be too strong a word. Now the idea that one faith is the true faith, that one group of people have somehow either discovered or it's been revealed to them the truth that everybody else should believe is not exactly a popular idea. I've actually seen on multiple occasions in various you know, articles and pieces I've read, I've seen the phrase, those immoral Christians, used non-ironically. 
And they're not talking about hypocrites. It's not like those who say they're Jesus followers but don't live up to it. No, like full on, like committed, practicing, we believe what the Bible says and we're trying to live it out, described as inherently immoral. And I don't even know if the person was trying to be mean. This is just what they believe. Then on account of what we believe is true and what we think we're supposed to do, this is the perception that some people have of us. Now, part of the problem of this, granted, part of the problem of this is we live in a fallen world and the natural condition of the fallen mind is one of spiritual blindness. You know what I mean? Like people just can't, without help from God, see the truth about who he is. So we get that at some level. At the same time, though, let's not just point the finger outward. Let's acknowledge that like some of this is on us. Some of the strangeness, some of the, some of the uh, lack of appreciation for our message might be on it, some Christians some of the time, maybe a little bit. And there, there are all sorts of ways we, we've seen this done. People practice evangelism in ways that are questionable. People talk about their faith in ways that sometimes seems to do more harm than good. Now, I don't want to pick on e- easy examples. We could all multiply easy examples, but I do, and I want to be very careful because I'm not disparaging. I'm not even casting a negative judgment. I genuinely don't know what to think about it. But every time after church on a Sunday afternoon when I drive through Madison and MacArthur, that intersection, there's a group of gentlemen who are there, and they have signs that have Bible verses, and they're, and they're kind of hollering out to the people who are driving by. And again, no district, no, I don't, they don't, they don't seem mean. I'm actually regularly impressed with their voice projection. You know what I mean? Like here I am just waiting at the light and it's like the Bible said and I'm thinking like my windows are rolled up. How can I hear you? <laughs> so I kind of find that part impressive and I've never yet stopped and said, hey, how's this going? Like what's the philosophy? What kind of fruit do you see? Maybe this works fine. I don't know, but I wrestle with it. And more to the point, we could all share examples of ways people try to share the gospel that isn't fine that doesn't need to be wrestled with because it shouldn't be done. Now, I don't want to make fun of what we all agree is done, but you get the point. And if these things make you squirm a little bit, I'm with you. They make me squirm a little bit too. I don't really think that's best. Like, I don't want to do that, but I don't want to do nothing either. You just heard the text, Luke 10, 1 to 24, read over you. Hopefully, its basic message is pretty clear. Life with Jesus is life on mission. That is the heart of what I want to say today, what I think this word is saying to us today. And we'll get more specific later, but for this first bit, life with Jesus is life on mission. Let's just kind of lock that in. I had a buddy who used to say, a call to follow is a call to fish, which is a little cheesy, but it makes the point. A call to follow Jesus is a call to fish for other people. I kind of like that. Sometimes you might hear the idea that you are a missionary, and I think that is 100% true. Everybody say, I am a missionary. Let's try it again. I am a missionary. Now, I don't know if you think about yourself that way. I, for most of my life, I thought of missionaries as somebody who travels over an ocean. You know what I mean? Like, you've got to get in a plane to be in a missionary. No. The word mission means that, like, you have been sent by God into your context, your job, your neighborhood, your family. You are, in your own world, in your own domain, a missionary. That, I think, is the implicit statement of this text, and maybe implicit isn't even the right word, because look at the first couple of verses. Take a peek. Look at this word. You'll see a word twice here in chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Uh, It starts with, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others, and what's the next word? Sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to, here it is again, send out workers into his harvest field. Actually, the next one says it again. Go, I am sending you out. Sent, sending, sending. You kind of see the repetition here, trying to make a point. We are sent. 
Our English word mission comes from the Latin word missio, which just means sent. It's the same word family here. The history comes straight around from sent to mission. You're on a mission. Now, there is a sense in which all of life is mission, a very important sense, which every aspect of your life is to be done with God, to glorify him. So your work, that is part of your, doing your job well, part of the mission. Your family, loving your family, taking care of your lawn, getting to know your neighbor, like basic stuff, you know what I mean? All of it is mission. Martin Luther once said, if you can't change a diaper to the glory of God, you can't do anything to the glory of God. And I think that's pretty cool. So like there's a sense in which the entirety of our lives is mission, but right now we're talking about being sent on a particular mission, those seasons of your life or those situations or relationships in which you kind of think, man, you know what? I'm pretty sure it's, on my, it's my responsibility right now to just go and tell this person about Jesus, to go and share with them who he was. That's specifically what we're talking about when we say in this context to be sent. Now that word sent is just the tip of the iceberg. You ever wonder why 72 or 70, depending on your translation. See, the ancient manuscripts here are a little bit confused. Some of them say that he sent out 70. Others say that he sent out 72. It's a hard one to figure out. You just kind of got to guess. You got to take your pick. Now, I think it's fascinating that you could understand the point of it either way, and maybe even the distinction is helpful. There's two Old Testament passages that are going to help us understand what's going on here with the number 72 or 70. One of them is Numbers chapter 11, and the other is Genesis chapter 10. Go ahead and flip over to Numbers chapter 11. I want to look with you at what's going on in Numbers chapter 11. It's a book in the Bible, Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, fourth one in, Numbers chapter 11. While we turn there, let me kind of set the scene for you. Uh, God has delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. So he's, he's rescued them from oppression, and now he's leading them through the wilderness. And they're being led by a man named Moses. Moses is the leader of the people, and Moses is tired because the people are complaining. So the people are frustrated, and Moses is frustrated, and God is frustrated, and Moses is like, what do you want me to do, Lord? You sent us out here. Help me out. So pick it up in verse 16 of Numbers chapter 11. I want you to notice what, uh, what happens. The Lord said to Moses, those are the words, verse 16, the Lord said to Moses, bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting. That's where God would meet with his leaders. Have them come to the tent of meeting that they may stand there with you. Now I will come down and speak with you there and I will take some of the power of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. They will share the burden of the people with you so that you do not have to carry it alone. So Moses did this. He gathered all the people together and then he pulled these 70 leaders, these 70 elders up to the front and the spirit came down on them and they just started speaking the word of God. They just started prophesying and everybody knew, okay, God is appointing them as leaders. He is sharing the spirit of Moses with them. This is so cool. And then here's what's wild. Later on in Numbers 11, there's these two random guys named Eldad and Medad. If you have twins, maybe you can name them Eldad and Medad. I don't know. So Eldad and Medad, they just start prophesying too. And Joshua, Moses' assistant, is like, hey, why don't you tell him to stop? And Moses says, no way. I wish everybody would prophesy. The more, the merrier. So you've got these 70 and these 72. And the spirit is being shared with them so that they might share the burden of leadership with Moses. Are you catching the connection? I think that's intentionally behind this text in Luke 10. And part of the point is Jesus is sharing his spirit with his people so that they might share in the mission that God has sent him to accomplish. To what end or purpose? Well, that's where Genesis 10 comes in. Genesis 10 follows the Noah and the flood story. 
So in this story, God destroys the world, starts over, starts fresh. Genesis chapter 10 is a list of all the nations in the world at the time. 70 nations, unless you read some versions that have, no joke, 72. And the point here is, what is this mission to which we've been called? To take the good news of Jesus to all the nations. I think this is so cool. These layers of meaning that are wrapped up right here in Luke chapter 10. So I think what we have here is a clear statement that we've been invited by God and sent to continue Jesus' mission in taking the gospel to the ends of the world. Luke wrote the gospel of Luke. He also wrote the book of Acts. And that happens to be what Acts is all about. We are the continuation of the mission. But that raises the question. Luke, if you're going to write a whole second volume about the mission of God's people which happens like, you know, after Jesus dies and is raised again. That's what they keep pointing back to. And the Spirit takes residence in them, and, and you know, it's a great story. If you're going to write a whole thing, like, why report this mission here? And Jesus, if you're going to, like, when you get to the end, send everybody out into all the world, what's going on with this one over here? And I think part of the point of this one over here is we need to understand that mission is not something that at a certain point we reach a certain level of maturity, and now I'm sent out. No, like, what we see here is, I think, biblical proof that we start mission in the middle. We start mission now. Life with Jesus is life on mission. From the beginning, if you're going to do life with this man, he's on a mission. You are too. And so Luke tells us about this mission of the 72. Now, there's some things about this mission that that are not the same as ours. There's some specific, unique things to this one. But there are also some some parallels, some things we can pull out of this, some anchors for our life on mission. And I want to talk together with three of you, three of them, three of the things, not with three of you, like the rest of you are going to get ignored. That's awesome. (laughs) I hope there are more than three of you on mission. (laughs) I will say, though, I don't know what the number is. I will say the rest of what we're going to talk about, it, 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 it won't necessarily connect if you're not living on mission with Jesus. It's sort of like if you're given a, a sailing instruction manual. If you're, uh, okay, cool, like, I don't, I'm not on the water. You know what I'm saying? But if you're on the boat and you get the manual, now it's time to pay attention. So this is stuff mainly for those who are on mission. If you're not on mission with Jesus, if you, if you haven't been active in this, then you just need to sort of keep camping out in this idea that you're called to be on mission. If you want to know some things about it, let's look at them together. There are three of them that we'll pull. Number one, our mission is active and articulate. Everybody say articulate. When my kids were learning how to speak, I used to mess with them. I don't know if this is the best parenting strategy, but I'd be like, say dog, dog, say fish, fish, say articulate. (laughs) It was fun. Um, Active and articulate. My point is, it requires actions and words. That's what I mean. You got to do something, you got to say something. That's That's how it works. If you don't have both, it's incomplete. You see this in verse nine of Luke chapter 10, when Jesus says, heal the sick who are there. And tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now we've been studying in the Gospels for a long time. And maybe you picked up now that the healing stories are a picture of Jesus putting people's lives back together again. Sometimes it's physical. Sometimes it's spiritual. Sometimes it's social. And I think here in this case, this is a, short, this is a shorthand for put, help, people put their, help people know that God can put their lives back together and like act it out. Do something for them in the name of Jesus. And then it also says, and tell them the kingdom of God has come near. Which again is shorthand for Jesus is here to restore what God originally intended. Jesus is here to save us from the mess we've made of things. 
Now the specifics, again, they differ based on the situation. Go read the book of Acts if you're not quite sure what this looks like in practice. There's all sorts of stories there about it. But what you'll consistently see is that you have actions and words, words and actions, both. Sort of like evangelism is kind of like a three-legged stool. You've seen those before, right? You pull one leg off the stool, the thing falls. It's like you got, you got our words, you got our actions, and you got God's spirit driving the whole thing. Pull any of those out, and it doesn't quite work the same way. Words and actions, actions and words. Nobody wants to hear a message from someone who is you know, a bad listener, a neglectful spouse, a harsh parent, a lazy worker. And I'm not trying to bust you. I'm not trying to guilt you. I want to be very careful that I'm not guilting people inappropriately today. I don't want to guilt you into evangelism. But let's just acknowledge that like, if your Facebook feed eight times out of 10 is filled up with mean, mean-spirited type stuff, just maybe, maybe not. Because next time you throw out that Jesus thing, everybody's just going to roll their eyes. We've seen this before in life. Maybe some of us have, have been this person. And on the other hand, we probably, at least hopefully, have all seen it work well. I heard a story this last week about a young man who was, he was dating a young girl who was uh, kind of mid, mid-college, late-college students, and he had gone to, they were following Jesus, this young man, this young lady. Her family were not believers. They, they didn't know the Lord. And so this young man went to the dad and said, I'd like to ask your permission to marry your daughter. I like you, you work hard, you take care of her, I'm, I'm good. Yes, you can marry my daughter. When do you want to do it? And the young man said, you know, he, he gave him a date. It was probably about six, eight, nine months out, somewhere in there. And the dad was like, whoa, whoa, why, why so quick, man? Why don't you just slow down a little bit? Like, I don't understand the rush. And the young man said, well, I mean, to be honest with you, sir, uh, we've made a commitment to sexual purity because of what we believe the Bible says. I mean, this is the teaching of the scriptures that, that, that this belongs within the context of marriage. And so we are committed to, to maintaining purity until then. And I mean, it's not exa- I'm not trying to be awkward, but it's not exactly easy, you know? And this dad was like, wait, hold up. You, you mean you haven't? And he's like, um, no. And he's like, well, really? <laughs> and it started a conversation that led to a conversation that led to a conversation. And now I'm not making this up. Her family's following Jesus. How cool is that? Yeah, years later, they're now walking with the Lord because he acted it out, lived it out, and then he spoke it. You gotta have both. Now, there are times, and there are some of us who fall into this, I'm just an actions person, I'm not a words person. Ah, I show more than I tell. Good, good, please, show more than you tell because the world needs to see us living this out more often than it hears us preaching this out. Like, absolutely show more than you tell, but also tell. Because while that's good, it's incomplete. You've heard that statement, um, preach the gospel at all times, when necessary, use words. It's silly. Like, I get the sentiment. Let your life be a testament to the good news. But you gotta speak up. You gotta say something. Otherwise, it just, it it doesn't work, it's incomplete. So I think the practical question here is fairly simple, and each of you can answer it for yourselves, or maybe as communities, friends, spouses, families, whatever. Which one is, is lacking for you? Have you been living the life? I'm just showing them. I'm just showing them, and you need to speak up. Or have you been yapping your lips, and you need to slow down and get some things right? You decide. You listen to the Spirit. You discern what you're being led to do. Second thing I think we see here is that our mission is difficult but doable. Difficult but doable. Those are the words here. I um, would imagine that if we did get a chance to sit down and say, why don't you do evangelism more than you do? You'd say, well, because it's hard and because I don't know if I'm gonna be good at it. (laughs) 
I don't know if it's going to work. Maybe you've had experiences where you tried and failed, or maybe you're just, you're an introverted person or you're shy and you don't talk about anything private. Maybe it's just, for whatever reason, it's hard for you. Any number of reasons. It's just, it's hard to work up the courage to give it a go. A part of me would love to say, no, it's gonna be easy, but it's not. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, it's gonna be easy, guys. Nope. Nope, he seems to think this will be tough. Look at what he says in verse three. He says, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. That doesn't sound easy. In the next verse, he talks about leave, all, leave your bag, tunic, extra stuff. Don't take any of that stuff. Why? Because you need to get used to the fact that you are dependent on God if this thing is gonna work because it ain't gonna be easy. No, like you just, a couple of times he openly acknowledges not everybody's gonna respond well. Flip over, let me, let me read here. You don't have to flip, I'll flip for you. I'm gonna read a couple of, of uh, passages from Matthew chapter 10. They're, these are parallel texts. Both are commissioning texts and they have differences, but a lot of some of the same details. Matthew chapter 10, here's what Jesus says in another very similar context. He start, I'm gonna start reading in verse 16. He tells these people, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Again, same thing we hear in ours. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you'll be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. Jump down ahead a little bit, verse 21. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved when you are persecuted. When, he says, you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. Down verse 24, the student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. So if the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, that's a demon, how much more the members of his own household? Arrests, betrayal, hatred, being called demon-possessed, all to be expected, Jesus said. I think sometimes we can, or I, will, I don't know about you, I can fall into this trap of thinking today is so unique. I don't know what to call it. There's got to be a technical term for it. It's not ethos, ethnocentrism. It's sort of like now-centrism. <laughs> like thinking that there's just, well, right now is not the time for evangelism. It's just, it's not really very, religion is a sensitive subject now. You know, like people don't like hearing about Jesus anymore. Anymore? <laughs> I mean, it's always been unpopular. There's always been people who didn't want to hear this. Well, people don't like being told that they're going to face judgment. Really? Like in past days, people were like, oh, what? So like if I continue along this path, I'm going to be judged by God? Like, thank you for saying that. I am, I'm not interested at all. Like, I'm out. Like, no thanks. But man, th thank you for the kind gesture of affection. I just really appreciate the word. No. Like, you're always going to have people rejecting you. It was always going to be like this. Jesus assumes this from top to bottom. You say to him, it's uncomfortable to start a conversation about you. He says to you, I know. You say to him, it's hard to answer some of the questions that are going to come my way. He says to you, I know. Okay. You can do hard things. You said to him, I'm not ready yet. He says to you, remember, you're studying Luke chapter 10, not Luke chapter 24. And here again, I think is part of the point of this. You're not ready, neither were they. They didn't even know the whole message. They, weren't, they didn't even have the Holy Spirit inside of them yet. They weren't equipped, and yet he sent them out. In part, I think, so that we will recognize we have similarly been sent. Did you see at the end of this text when he's like, I praise you, God, that you have hidden these things from the wise and learned it and revealed them to little children, revealed them to babes, that's a compliment. It's kind of a backhanded one. 
I thank you, God, that you use people who don't have it all together, who don't have all the answers, who other people might look at and say, no, that's not gonna work. And this only makes sense if the success of this mission does not depend on the perfection of the missionaries. That's good news, difficult but doable. Speaking of success, let me give you the third and final one. Our mission is secondary yet serious. Secondary yet serious. I'm not perfectly pleased with the wording. I'm just trying to keep it tight. So in in an effort to be clear, let me explain what I mean. What I mean is, the success of your mission is, is secondary. You should prioritize your own relationship with the Lord, like celebrate that more than anything. But at the same time, there is an urgency to it. I'm thinking about what happens at the end of this text when they come back to Jesus and they're, they're saying like, oh, this is so great. Like the demons submitted to us. It worked. This is so amazing. And Jesus is like, man, I did give you guys authority and I saw Satan fall like lightning. But don't rejoice that the demons submit to you. Rejoice instead that your names are written in heaven. I don't, I don't think he's rebuking them. I just think he's saying, y'all be careful. Absolutely be amazed at how God works through you, but don't ever stop being amazed at how God has saved you. That, I think, is the attitude that he's talking about. And man, this, I think this only makes sense if you're in it. And if you've never had the, had the experience of introducing somebody to Jesus, if you've never experienced the joy of watching that light come on for the first time, you are missing out. I'm not, I'm not trying to guilt you at all. But my biggest prayer is that you wouldn't feel guilted into evangelism. I just think Jesus is so awesome, it makes sense to want to talk about him. And if you haven't yet given your life to mission to a point where you've gotten to watch some of these things come together, you're missing out because it's awesome. It's intoxicating. It's cool. Some of you do know this, though. And you've experienced this thrill. And it's real easy for that thrill to become the most important thing that you seek for the success of the mission to be how you measure yourself. Whether it's here talking to kids who come to church or working with your neighbors or being an evangelist at your job, whatever it is, like you've fallen into that trap of being, becoming so focused on introducing other people to Jesus that you've started to neglect the fact that you have an open access to the presence of the Father. You have a living relationship with Jesus. He just says, don't, don't, don't get the things out of balance here. So hear this, secondary, not primary, secondary. You helping other people, secondary. Primary, you with God. However, It's serious. And this is the most steady theme that draws a thread through this entire commissioning text. The urgency of the message. This isn't a joke. This isn't a hobby. The stakes literally couldn't be higher. Think about how this mission in Luke 10 foreshadows our mission. Jesus sends these people ahead of him to tell other people, hey, Jesus is coming And he's going to do something that's going to bring salvation for some and judgment for all. And how you respond to him is going to determine which of those two paths you take. That's the mission that they're sent on. Do you see the parallel to our mission? No wonder urgency drips from this text. Just leave your extra stuff at home. Not because he doesn't want you to have two pairs of shoes, but because he's saying focus. Says, don't even say hi to anybody on the way. Not because he wants you to be rude, but because he's saying lock yourself in. He said, when you get there and you get into a house and you find a place to stay, just stay in one place. Don't be moving around a bunch. A bit of context here. In the ancient world, hospitality was pretty ritualized, like some cultures in our world. And if you moved into a place in a mission like this, you know, you'd take whatever bed was offered you. But then it's like, well, I'm sleeping on the couch here, and these people offered me a bed here. And there's a status thing to it at some level. You know, you're moving up a little bit. There's also a comfort thing to it. It's just a little bit more space over there. Then you could tell yourself, man, those conditions are a little bit more beneficial for a ministry. Those are going to be a little bit more helpful for what we're trying to do. And Jesus just says, stop it with the game. Just find a place, 
Lay down your head when it's time to go to sleep and get back up and get to work when it's time to get to work. Sometimes we can think, man, if I were just in a different situation, if I just lived by different non-Christians, if I just work with different non-believers, you know what I mean? Like the problem is the people I'm around. No, Jesus says, don't play that game. Don't worry about going from one place to another place to another place. Just be in the place where he has you. He says, when you leave and it doesn't work, shake the dust off your feet. That's a little bit weird. It's an ancient Jewish ritual. And it has to, a little bit to do with the idea of being welcomed into God's presence. You have to be clean to be welcomed into God's presence. And so when you shake that dust off your shoes, it's a way of saying, y'all are going to be shaken off in the judgment, kind of like the dust on these shoes, because you have rendered yourself unfit for God's presence. This is serious stuff. This is why in the parallel in Matthew chapter 10, it's the place where Jesus said, maybe you've heard these words, it's the place where Jesus said, don't think I've come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. I've come to divide families in half. And it's not because he doesn't like families. It's not because he thinks it isn't important that you know, folks stay with one another in their family structures. It's because there's something even more important and that's how you respond to Jesus. Back in our text, there's some harsh words in here. Woe to you. Chorazin and Bethsaida. Woe to you. You will go down to Hades. And then he says that part where he's like, even though, you know, even though we're not Jesus, we carry the authority of Jesus. And if they say no to us, when we clearly present the word, it's, it, it is them saying no to him. This is heavy. This is for real. If this is true, whew, what I think we need is to let what we know to be true become more important than not wanting to feel awkward. Because everybody you know is headed toward an eternal destiny. And no matter how you, you know, shake down some of those details that are hard to understand, one is desirable and the other is not. And crazy as it may seem to you, how people respond to Jesus in this life determines their destiny one way or the other. And crazy as it may seem to you, and it does seem crazy to me, God has left the telling of this truth up to us. Now, you're not alone when you speak. He didn't just say, go do it yourself. He has decided in his providence to speak this through us. There's an evangelist uh, a number of decades ago. You may have heard his name. His name is Dwight L. Moody. A Moody Bible Institute is named after him. And he was, he was committed to just everybody he knew. Want to make sure they hear about Jesus. Small groups, large groups, I don't care. All groups, go. And there was a lot of criticisms of some of his, his methods. And people didn't like the way he'd do things. And there was this one time he was at a rally and he it finished. And then afterwards he was talking to people. And this lady came up to him and she said, I don't, Mr. Moody, I don't care for your methods very much. And he said, okay, well, what are your methods? And she said, well, I don't have any. <laughs> and he said, well, I don't care for my message methods much either, but I like mine better than yours. And that's the spirit I love. Like, I don't always know what to do. And that's not rhetorical. Again, I don't always know what to do in these situations. And often I just, I just I say a prayer. And that's not nothing. But there's a time to do more. There's a time to speak up. There's a time to say something. And somebody I once knew said that, you know, most of what we get to do in this life, we'll get to do throughout all eternity. We'll get to worship. And we'll get to work with our hands. We'll get to build stuff. We'll get to engage. We'll get to eat food together. We'll get to have fun. We'll get to play sports, paint paintings, sing songs. And I genuinely believe, I, genuinely believe, I think all these good things will be there in eternity. We'll get to do all these things. But he pointed out the one thing that we get to do now that we don't get to do in eternity is introduce Jesus to people who don't know his name. 
to people who are not in a saving relationship with him, to invite them into that saving relationship. The time for evangelism is uniquely now. And to use Jesus' words, the harvest is still plentiful. Let's make the workers a bit less few. Father God, send us out with power because we need it with courage, because we need it with wisdom, because we need it with words, because we're not gonna say them perfectly. Lead us well, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.